cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon, you two, the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. My name is Kingsley Kipuri, and as usual, I'll be your host for the next hour. Before we jump into it, I would just like to point your attention to one very fun and interesting thing. Yes, I'm just showing off our new jingle. Greg Nicholson in studio with me. What do you think? What do you think of the new beats? I know this was a priority of yours for about two years since we started the show. So just for your sanity, I'm happy it's done. And it actually sounds fantastic. I mean, it only took me about 24 months to get to it. Um, I'm glad to say we were on budget. We didn't do so well on, on time. But, you know, sometimes it's just the outcome that, that matters. So I just, I just want to make sure the outcome was right. So thanks for your feedback. I think listeners should understand as well that you were key, you are integral in this process, sort of saying, you know, a little bit more bass there, a little bit more sax over there. I want to play one more time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take a step back and we'll play throughout the show. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll work it in. Absolutely. Everybody tuning in, thank you so much. As mentioned, it's a Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. I'm Kingsley. I'm here with Greg. Uh, we've got quite a packed show lined up. Um, Greg, how have you been doing otherwise? Well, Kingsley, I think you and perhaps some of our friends and even perhaps listeners might know that I'm like kryptonite to technology. So often when I have smartphones, something will just go wrong. I'll lose them, they'll get stolen, I'll drop it in the toilet, I'm that guy. But I've just got a new smartphone, I'm back in the game, and it was actually so great waking up this morning, because I'm not sure if you've seen this news, right? So I just check my emails and on my phone and things like that. So I woke up this morning and I see um, the newsletter, the Daily Mavericks newsletter, just saying how... Uh, I think it's, is it Kelly Conway, the White House aide? Yes. Yes, the, the, the White House aide denying President Trump's assertion that, that he was sort of spied on. What, what was it? Wiretapped, yeah, I think it was. Wiretapped by the Obama administration. So yeah. she denied this, flatly said no, he was actually There's sort no- of alluding to that more in general, talking about, um, um, observations and things like that. Yep. Yet in the same breath, suggesting that they might have been able to put cameras in the microwaves. Yep. So not only that in our newsletter this morning, Desi, it's such a Fun little fact as well That did you know When Instagram started It only had 13 employees No sorry When it was bought by Facebook Only had 13 employees I did see that And I was was amazed By how that was possible Then there's Then there's some Just other little Little gems in here Apart from getting the news From like Understanding the latest On Sasa Understanding the latest On Prasa And other sort of Government agencies And and other sports And other news too There's even this Other little gem That Japan had a monster Collecting card game As far back as The Edo period 1603 To 1868. Isn't that fascinating? That is something. If you'd like to subscribe to the Daily Maverick First Thing newsletter or the afternoon thing, and we also have weekend newsletters, you can find that on the Daily Maverick website. Click subscribe to them all, and trust me, your mornings will be better for it. Absolutely. Wonder what happened while you were asleep? You know where to find it. First Thing newsletter. Just click on (laughs) dailymaverick.co.za, click newsletter, and you're good to go. Now to jump into today's show, uh, a couple of topics. First, we're going to talk a bit about Somaliland, uh, a country not too many people know about, um, and and their push for freedom and their and their 
striving for recognition, not only from the African Union but from the international community. So you've got a we've got a we've got a state that is this declared itself sovereign and is doing a lot of the right things, like its own governance, its own currency, um, its own security forces, but it's still hitting a lot of roadblocks on its road to be recognized as a fully independent country. Secondly, uh, I'm going to talk a bit about Mozambique. Um, our neighbors have had some tension in the past uh, between the two sort of largest political parties, Renamo and Frelimo, that date back to its to its liberation struggle. And some people are saying that the most recent truce that they've they, they declared and the peace talks actually there's there's cause to be quite optimistic this time. So Greg's been you know reading quite a bit about that, and we'll speak a bit more about that. And finally, we're going to talk about Uber. Um, that's been on the newspapers, and we've been talking about that over the past week, and, and that's been largely around clashes between the the Uber drivers and between meter taxis that culminated in the blockage of the highway on the way to the airport last week. So we'll talk about Uber, the business model, and specifically what it means in a South African. African uh, legislative context. This whole idea that Uber is not a transport company, it's a technology company. Are Uber drivers employees? Are they unfairly competing against the meter taxi drivers? Uh, we're going to dig into all that and much more. Okay. Firstly, we're going to talk a bit about Somaliland, as I mentioned. Um, that's a country uh, within the borders of Somalia that's declared itself independent and we want to find out what's going on. On the line, we have the resident representative of the Republic of Somaliland to the UK and the Commonwealth. Uh, Madam Ayan Mahmoud. Uh, Ms. Mahmoud, can you hear us? I can hear you. Wonderful. Thank you, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, uh, as mentioned, you know, offline, this is not a, a story or a conversation that's been had, you know, so much in South Africa. So I'd really love to start really from the basics. And if you could just talk us through what is Somaliland and, and how did it first come into existence in, the, in sort of uh, the region's colonial history? Um, Somaliland is uh, an old British protectorate, and uh, it have uh, it had a, uh, a, a, a brutal war a war with Somalia. Uh, uh, we we united with Somalia in 1960 uh, after our independence, and uh, but that uh, uh, that that marriage was not really. Uh, and happy one, and then uh, after brutal war, war and killing of almost fifty over fifty thousand uh, Somalilanders lo- losing their lives, and uh, much of the country uh, being destroyed, uh, especially the capital city, we have declared ourselves independent in 1991. So that's the short, in short version of uh, Somaliland. No, that's wonderful. I mean, you mentioned. Um, uh that the, the marriage was an unhappy one, so to speak. Could you give us some details of what were some of the underpinning issues that made that that collection or that union uh, so volatile? Um, uh, Somali, Somali yeah, had a, uh, after the union had a very brief uh, 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 democratic uh, government, and in 1969 uh, uh, it has been. Uh, Taken over by coup by a military dictatorship, Siad Barre, who have actually uh, uh, stigmatized uh, at the beginning Somalilanders, and 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 uh, and that that has that stigmatization just grown as uh, uh, and as years progressed, it became brutal and and killing political killing, mm. uh, disappearance, uh, and you name it, and and that uh, and then Somaliland. This have organized themselves under the banner of Somali, Somali national movement and uh, and have freed the country country in 1991 and have declared 
uh, uh, Somaliland independent. Could you talk us through some of and the... After that, yeah, sorry, uh, continue, please. Uh, yeah. So after that, uh, we had... Uh, 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 we had the referendum, uh, we had a new constitution uh, voted by popular vote, uh, we had five elections, uh, 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 local elections, parliamentary elections, uh, president uh, twice and uh, presidential elections, actually three times presidential elections, and it's, it's functioning uh, state now within African I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's quite clear from all the news coming from that region. And just lastly, just still talking about the uh, the, the the Declaration of Independence in '91, as you mentioned. Could you just talk us through some of the logic uh, by some of the leaders of Somaliland uh, and people like you who are part of the sort of representatives externally? The logic as to why uh, there's, a, there's a feeling that Somaliland is best left as an independent country. That this is basically the, the logic behind saying, you know what, it's better that we do this. On our own. In fact, the question uh, 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 we, ha- we have to turn it, and there is no reason for Somaliland to join Somalia again mm. or to rejoin because uh, after uh, we declared ourselves independent, uh, uh, functioning as a state uh, uh, that can protect its citizens, yeah. that can. Uh, uh, So there is actually no reason why uh, Somalia is uh, is trying to also recover from a, a long war and 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 and, and extremism, but uh, there is actually no reason for Somaliland to join Somalia again. I mean that makes. I mean you're right. I mean the place uh, that it has, has its own it, it, currency. It, 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 yeah. it, it has its own currency. It has its own uh, military, police. Uh, Parliament, local uh, councillors, uh, pre- elected uh, president. So uh, there is absolutely no reason for Somaliland to go back uh, with uh, in unity, and it will be very difficult now because the, the country have progressed for uh, for the uh, for the last 27 years mm. as an independent, uh, although not recognized, but as an independent uh, state. Absolutely. I mean, you're right. There's all, all the markers there that, you know, anyone watching the situation would say this is a fully functioning country. So which then begs the question, uh, in your view, why do you think it's been so difficult to get the African Union and the international community uh, to, to, to fully recognize Somaliland as an independent country? It's, uh, uh, in fact, more a failure uh, why Somaliland is not recognized. Uh, but more practically, is uh, it's uh, safe, it's secure, it's no problem. So I, I, I guess the feeling of international community is we don't have to do anything if there's no problem. So that's the major problem, that there's no problem in Somaliland. Mm. And some people say uh, that there's uh, a worry uh, that... If 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 freedom is granted or fully recognition is given to Somaliland, that it will give I don't know open the door for other movements around the continent, secessionist movements like Biafra, perhaps people in Zanzibar, people in perhaps even Mombasa in Kenya to say, hey, if they can separate, so can we. Do you think those fears are a part of the reason why the AU is reluctant to grant Somaliland that full recognition? Not really, because uh, Somaliland it's uh, uh, it is uh, 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 within the, uh, uh, the colonial borders that uh, uh, that the uh, African Union 
respect and accept. And so it's not a socialist state like many of the of the movement that want to be uh, independent. Somaliland is a it's all British protectorate. It was any state before, and and so it is. It, it's totally different case and a specific, uh, very special and specific case. So that whole worry, it's uh, uh, it's not granted. And what about the fear that uh, other provinces in the region, like Jubaland, Hiranland, uh, would also want to pull out, and that would lead to sort of a separation of Somalia along clan lines, um, where every sort of clan would just sort of form its own region? Do you think that? Do you think that's a valid concern that some people have? Um, uh, no, re- not really, because all those uh, mini states within Somalia are uh, uh, part of the uh, Somali federal system. And uh, there are no reason for them to separate. And actually, they're not asking for 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 um, for, for separation. Uh, and and, and, and uh, Somalia said it's uh, different because it is... Uh, so uh, all those states you are mentioning, they don't aim... They're not aiming for, for independence. And uh, as Somali, uh, Somaliland... It, it functions really uh, as a state, so we are not asking that something that we we are not. We are already in state. We are already in functioning African state within the within in Africa. Okay, um, Ms. Mahmoud, you are the resident representative of the Republic of Somaliland, as I mentioned, specifically to the Commonwealth on the UK. Could you talk us through, I mean, the strategies that your government and you specifically are employing uh, as you go to the UK, to the Commonwealth and other countries to try and, to try and, I suppose, mobilize aid, mobilize investment, mobilize recognition? Could you talk us through sort of your work and what exactly you're doing? Uh, 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 our, in fact, uh, uh, our focus has been uh, uh, number one that all uh, all what is going on in Somalia should not damage Somaliland to start with, mm. uh, and and situation as it is should be respected. Somaliland is an independent, and uh, uh, if any support is coming to Somaliland development or otherwise, it should be. Uh, talk to uh, Somali, uh, Somaliland government and not Somali government. Uh, secondly, uh, we have been focusing actually quite in, uh, in, in African states also, uh, like the country, uh, like, uh, like your own country, South Africa. And in fact, South Africa was a long time friend of Somaliland. Uh, uh, it has since uh, 2005. And, and fi- fact-finding mission to Somaliland, which actually uh, came uh, came with a report, which says there's no reason and there's no legal reason not to recognize Somaliland. So I guess uh, those kind of fact-finding uh, missions are what, what we need uh, from European Union, from the Commonwealth, and 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 assess the situation as it is, and just not uh, not holding uh, holding to an to an, 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 a kind of scary uh, uh, that Somaliland, uh, by recognizing Somaliland, it will, it will cause problems. No, uh, that would not. And, and, and I think more people visit Somaliland, uh, uh, either uh, from Europe and, 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 and Africa, they, they will come to the realization that why not? 
it's actually already functioning as a, as a, as a state. Absolutely, and I'm sure I can see Greg already wanted to take a visit over there. Uh, now, Ms. Mahmoud, just turning uh, the page a bit and w- wanting to speak about something you've been quite vocal about over the past couple of weeks and months is about the famine. Um, so the, 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 the region has been facing a very severe drought and famine, and, and you've put out a plea saying that the world should not just watch. And secondly, what I'd like to ask you is you're saying this was seen coming, we saw this coming. Could you please talk us through the famine and why you believe this was predictable and could have been seen coming? Uh, so the, the drought, it, uh, Somaliland uh, did not have a proper rain for the last three years. Uh, we had a, a, a severe drought uh, three years ago. But luckily when uh, we had the drought, some, uh, uh, some, uh, uh, some regions of the country, people could go there and and, uh, and get fed by, by its own people. But because the drought has been uh, going on for the last three years and it w- has not been raining, uh, everyone c- could see it coming. In fact, that's why Somaliland election, which should have taken place in March, has been delayed to November because of the drought. Half of the population is displaced. Um, Somaliland is about 4 million people and 1.3, uh, 1.5 million are affected. So you can imagine half of Somaliland population is affected by this drought. They lost everything, they lost all their animals. And, and, and uh, as we speak, people are starting to die because of lack of food, medication, but also uh, diseases and illnesses that, that, uh, 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 that uh, uh, diseases and illnesses. Because, because of the drought. Absolutely. And Ms. Mahmoud, before we let you go, um, what is your, given the, the dire circumstances in terms of the, the famine being faced in the, in the country, in the region, what, what is your plea to the international community and to anyone listening right now? Um, it just, I would say just forgot Somaliland is uh, not recognized. We have to save people now. And uh, international uh, community inter- uh, should come in and, and and if, if we don't save people now, it will be too late tomorrow. In fact, it is already too late for many people. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're just tuning in, that was our interview with the resident representative of the Republic of Somaliland to the UK and the Commonwealth. Um, that's uh, Miss Ayan Mahmoud. Um, some might say she's effectively an ambassador from Somaliland to London and the, and, and the Commonwealth. I mean, Greg, just in the in the famine that she was talking about, before we move on to the next thing, uh, just looking that up, the UN has announced it's facing its largest humanitarian crisis since the 40s, and there's over 20 million people facing starvation and famine. And I don't know, I think the more we talk about, we talk to Simon, I, th- I think we talked to Simon Allison briefly about this, and he said at least in Sudan and South Sudan, this was something that was seen coming, and that um, in the midst of the... Of the of the factional battles and the and the and the issues in Sudan and South Sudan, um, people saw this coming and 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 the killing of livestock, the 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 burning of fertile land was used as tactics in the war uh, between Rek Machar and Salva Kiir. Hmm. And I think that my my little monologue here is just to say, how do we get to a point where over twenty million people could be at risk of dying due to lack of food, and that's kind of normal it's not it's not the biggest thing that everybody's talking about right now and i i just think i i don't know what hmm. to say it's shocking i think i think 
one of one of the things that I find particularly worrying from from that interview just just now yeah. is that Somali land is you know an effectively a functioning state, um, and yet. 1.5 million of its 3 million people have been been seriously affected by this issue. Now, when we look at South Sudan, other parts of different as parts of Sudan and different aspects and different areas around Somalia itself, I think it's extremely worrying. Obviously, the dire situation that many people are in, but in in regards to issues, particularly in South Sudan, it shows it shows the consequences of failing to resolve political troubles. Yeah. Okay. We're just about to change topic somewhat. We're just going to speak a bit about one of our neighbors, Mozambique. As I mentioned in the intro, um, something that Greg's been looking at quite closely and something that we've been following is the political situation, specifically around the, the two political parties in power and, and in opposition. That's Renamo and Frelimo. And, and their story of sort of peace and truth and threatening to go into open conflict has in a lot of ways underpinned the political stability and instability that we see in Maputo and Mozambique. So we wanted to just to just chat to, to somebody on the ground to really to really understand what's going on there. So we're just about to go live with, with Ed Adrian Babir, who's a journalist at AFP. Uh, Adrian, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Hi. Hi, welcome to the show. I mean, Greg, I'll let you jump in there. Yeah, um, we may as well. We don't have too much time, um, Adrian, so I may as well just jump straight into it. I think most of our listeners and many people around the world know um, a little bit about the 16-year civil war um, waged across Mozambique between the two big political parties, Frelimo and Renamo, um, that ended in 1992. I think the statistics say it killed about a million people, displaced about four million. Can you just tell us about sort of the history of division in that period between these two different parties and what what were the key sort of differences um, that, that, that led to that drawn-out conflict? Okay, so you know that um, we now know um, at the beginning was um, supported by the apartheid regime in, um, in South Africa, but what's uh, important to understand is like, it's that quickly the, they managed to, to convince the, 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 the population, especially in rural areas, uh, to, to follow them and to help them because increasingly those populations getting tired of the Frelimo communist regime and the, the kind of um, authoritarian methods they, they, they were using. So towards the, the, the end of the war, and it, that's when uh, you had the, the, the most killings, uh, the, the, the population, the Renamo had a strong support from the, from the population, which means that at the end of the war in 1992, Renamo appeared as uh, the, the party that, and it's uh, what they are still defending today, is that they were the one that managed to bring democracy uh, in Mozambique and uh, to, uh, to so that uh, the country can um, can hold multi-party election, which they did in 1994. Even though it's something that happened almost everywhere else uh, in the in the world after the um, the end of the Berlin Wall. 
So since after 1992, you had 20 years of peace. Mm -hmm. um, we now run for every election, every time Afonso Lacama, who is still now the leader of opposition, uh, he's been leading Renamo since 1979. At the time, he was uh, 26 years old. So every time he ran, every time he came, uh, he came second, every time Renamo uh, said that the ruling party was rigging the, the election. Uh, this changes in uh, 2014, mm -hmm. because two years before that, the, the old rebels... Uh, took up arms again. Uh, they felt that they had been put aside during 20 years, uh, that uh, peace had been really very good for the Frelimo elite, uh, that their businesses were flourishing, uh, but not for the old Winamo fighters. Um, uh, a main point of the 1992 peace agreement, which is still now a main point of the current peace talks, is the integration of old Winamo fighters into the army and the police. Uh, this was not properly handled, and Winamo said that uh, the, the fighters did not access to top senior positions and were put to retirement very quickly. So in 2012, uh, also, oh yeah, and what also changed a lot is that in 2010, you had these huge gas discoveries in northern Mozambique, uh, which is now considered as the biggest gas reserves in, uh, in all of sub-Saharan Africa, which can make over the next 10, 10 years Mozambique the next Qatar. So seeing all that, Renamo all levels uh, rebels went back uh, to the bush. They took up arms. During 2013-2014, uh, you had some uh, some clashes, uh, and just before the election, there was a first ceasefire that uh, enabled Lakama to run the election. Mm -hmm. uh, of which he once again, after which, um, when he came second, he he once. Again again said he would not recognize the result and have asked for, uh, since then, a reform uh, of the state structure to allow more uh, devolution. Uh, and he's specifically asking that uh, the governors be elected and now appointed by the president, uh, as mm -hmm. it is uh, now, because after the, the election, it appeared that we now know uh, won in most of central region regions, but was uh, not able to govern because of the the, the, the system of uh, government in uh, in Mozambique. Just can you just sort of break that down to us here in South Africa? People may not know about the Mozambique um, electoral system. Um, you were saying governors appointed are uh, appointed by the Mozambican national government, so that means uh, Renamo and Lakama then lose out on power in areas where they might otherwise be able to to win and govern these regions. Yes, yeah, so basically, at the, you have thirteen regions in uh, in Mozambique. Basically, in each region during the the general polls that. Last time took place in 2014. They uh, they elect at the provincial level uh, some some kind of provincial assembly, but this assembly is only 
consultative. It does not elect itself uh, executive branch, such as the, the governor. The governor is appointed by the president directly. So in the last election, uh, Rinamo came first, and now they have control of uh, three to four uh, provincial assembly, but the, the executives of all those provinces are still uh, appointed by the president and of uh, friendly members. So that's why now they want to change that, and to change that, there needs to be a change of the, the, the constitution. Mm -hmm. So that's one. They, what, that's what they've been discussing for the last uh, two to three years, uh, whether to change the constitution and how to do it. And while these discussions have been going on and Renamo's fighters have, have gone back to their, their strongholds, um, can you tell us just a bit about what this conflict looks like? Because I don't think we hear so much press about it here in South Africa. Is it... Is this a low-scale low sort of warfare? Um, we know sometimes you hear reports of, of soldiers going in and um, committing sort of atrocities. Um, we're hearing lots of reports of many people being displaced and having to flee over, over the border to Malawi. Just describe for us how this conflict is playing out. So it's both low-scale and underreported. As you may know, Mozambique is, uh, is uh, huge. I don't mm -hmm. know how it compared to South Africa, but it's, it's really an uh, enormous country with not too much populated, 25 million uh, people, and people are spread around, which, which means that most things can happen without uh, the rest of the people, and especially the capital that is situated uh, at the extreme south, uh, know about it. And there are just not too much journalists up there. Um, what, the, what the war looks like, it's um, so you have two things. You had two things until the truce that was uh, declared by Tlacama in. Um, uh, at Christmas, uh, you had until Christmas uh, attacks from Rinamo rebels on the the main road in central Mozambique. So it's the national road one that goes from uh, south to north. And you had uh, rebel attacking the cars and the trucks that was circulating on that road. So in February 2016, the government and the army put in place some uh, convoy, so uh, military convoy that were uh, escorting the, the, the cars, which means that the, the traffic was uh, really slowed down and the economy in that region was almost paralyzed. So on on those on those on this road you had uh, Rinamo attacking and so it was not direct ambush but most mostly uh, shot directly on the on the on the cars and this made a few a few deaths and uh, and some uh, some dozens of uh, of injured mm -hmm. at the same time you had uh, in the, the villages, in the rural areas, mostly around Rinamu bases, and uh, the most important was in Gorongosa, uh, which is uh, in central Mozambique, and it's the, the place where 
uh, Afonso Lacama, the opposition leader, has been hiding since uh, October 2015. And um, so far, nobody knows precisely where, where he's been, even though he managed to organize uh, press conferences by phone. Um, around those areas, there, there's been some uh, some clashes, uh, and there's been uh, the army uh, going in and uh, trying to look for Rinamo people and trying to uh, to to identify who was supporting them. And to the year of 2016, they were mostly asking everybody to leave. Uh, that's why you had this wave of refugees and displaced persons. So in December, you had, according to United Nations, uh, 8,000 refugees in both Malawi and Zimbabwe. And you had uh, way more internationally, internet, uh, internally displaced mm-hmm. uh, uh, that that some of them were culminated in government camps and others were in uh, uh, in host families. In parallel of, of this situation on the ground, you have uh, uh, executions, so assassinations of mostly uh, Rinamo members and Rinamo figures, and you also had uh, the same thing with uh, some Frelimo uh, members as a retaliation. Um, those executions are uh, led by what uh, people call here the death squads. Uh, it's apparently, because obviously it has not been proven, um, highly skilled, highly trained uh, uh, assassins uh, that they, that burst and have a list of, of uh, people to 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 eliminate. Uh, wow, that is actually extremely scary. Um, I, um, Adrian, just because we don't have too much more time, um, I want to turn quickly to the peace negotiations. It's been two years. Um, we've had mediators, international mediators who have now come and gone. What have been the key um, disputes holding up any progress on this issue? Yeah, so me, uh, besides the mediation, you have the peace dialogue that has actually started in 2012, even before the first clashes occurred. Uh, so at first they were discussing this, the problem of how to integrate Rinamo fighters in, uh, in the army and the police, and in a way try to find uh, a better situation to them, like uh, some kind of golden retreat. Uh, after the 2014 election, the second topic was the, the decentralization and the, the state organization system. So as of now, and that, that's the na- la- latest uh, uh, method that's been chosen and implemented since early February, we have two working groups uh, one is focusing on decentralization, the other one is focusing on uh, uh, military topics. Uh, it's been coming and going uh, because, uh, because first they could not agree on, uh, on the, the, how to properly integrate uh, those, those Rinamo fighters. Rinamo was saying they want to basically uh, uh, have a number of uh, 
posts that was granted to them. And the government was saying, well, first we need a list of all the fighters uh, that you have. So this is why the the, the first uh, the first peace process uh, ended. Um, and now the, the the second one has been. Uh, uh, more like taking length because of the, the, the decentralization, because really is uh, quite against uh, giving out uh, positions uh, uh, like this. So last year in 2016, when you had international mediators coming in and the mediation that was chaired by the European Union, they managed to convince the government to at least allow uh, provincial governors to be uh, to be appointed by uh, by Renamo and uh, and uh, elected uh, democratically, but the the people the representing Frelimo, even though they um, managed to agree this within the, the peace talks, sometimes were not able to convince their, their own party. So you had this very weird situation when um, uh, the Frelimo uh, representative would say, okay, uh, and then two hours uh, later they would retract uh, because it was not really approved by the party. Recently, however, there has been a ceasefire. I think it's just just earlier this month. There was another ceasefire agreed to between both Frelimo and Renamo. Um, and there seems to be some optimism in certain circles that a peace deal could be reached this year. Do you agree or not, and why? Well, the, the, to be honest, the, the, the ceasefire that was announced, uh, first it was announced uh, during Christmas, uh, and it was uh, unilateral only by uh, by a force of Lakama was a big surprise I think to 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 everybody. Uh, I don't know if now people are optimists. I think in the central region people are, are quite happy that you don't have attacks on the main roads. That uh, people can go back to their homes. They can. There were twenty thousand children that were missing school, so the, the 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 school has been reopening. So I think. People are quite happy uh, with that. Uh, I don't know if anybody here would risk saying that we would reach an agreement this year because, I mean, the, 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 the whole situation has been so uncertain for the last five years. It's really hard to say, to predict anything. The thing that's changing, though, is that next year, uh, in um, autumn 2018, uh, sorry, end of 2018, we're going to have municipal elections here. And uh, to some extent, we now want to pre- wants to prepare for this uh, and to be able to, to present candidates because the last municipal election in 2013, they boycotted it and uh, it benefited to the other opposition party. Absolutely. Adrian, thanks for the thorough breakdown, and we'll make sure to chat to you as the situation continues to unfold. Thanks so much. If you're just tuning in, uh, that's Adrian Barbier, uh, who's a journalist at AFP, who we're chatting to about the situation in Mozambique. Next up, we're going to be switching gears and talking a bit about Uber. Um, we've been reading the headlines and seeing 
or just living your day-to-day life and getting around, you must have noticed that there seems to be an increased tension between the, the Uber drivers and the meter taxis and these two and these two industries or these different players in the industry, one might say. Um, and it's, it culminated in the blockage of the highway last week. Greg, if I'm not mistaken, it was the, is the highway around the airport where meter taxi drivers sort of blocked the road and said enough is enough. Uber competing unfairly and this can't continue. So we're just about to speak to Homozo Mokwena, who's a law lecturer at the University of Johannesburg, who's worked extensively in matters of labor law, who's going to talk us through Uber, uh, and how Uber sits in a legislative context in South Africa. Um, are they a technology company? Are they a transport? company, are Uber drivers actually employees? And lastly, talking about the, 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 the situation with the meter taxis and, and, and you know, what's going on there. Homoza, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Hi, okay. Hi, welcome to the show. Now, firstly, um, in just reading your work and you published something in the Industrial Law Journal, first I just want to ask about these two words that I definitely didn't understand before reading it. Uh, casualization and externalization in a, in a labor context. Could you talk us through sort of what those two things are and why those are two trends that people interested in labor matters are watching? Well, casualization really relates to making the employment relationship less formal. Um, so, for example, and it, it relates quite closely to externalization, and I think we've noticed the phenomenon of labor brokers in the country, mm. um, temporary employment service providers. Uh, they really are the, the sort of epitome of casualization and externalization. And the reason why an organization might want to make their employment relationship less formal by perhaps classifying a person as an independent contractor, for example, um, would obviously be to avoid the legislative framework that goes along with protecting employees in the country. So it becomes much easier to run a business, for example, if you don't need to worry about, uh, you know, the Basic Conditions of Employment Act or the Labor Relations Act, how do you dismiss people, how do you appoint people, um, do you need to provide UIF, you don't need to worry about any of those things if your employment relationship is less formal. Or non-existent. <laughs> non-existent. Now, specifically coming to the sharing economy, is, is it fair to say that things like Uber and Airbnb and their business models have somewhat outpaced the legal frameworks we have, perhaps in the world, but specifically in the country? Uh, I would definitely agree to that. Uh, look, the sharing economy as a concept is much more about individuals sharing resources mm. or making resources much more easily available to one another. So it's not necessarily supposed to work only in a business context. We're seeing it in a business context because of Uber. Um, and Uber, the idea around it is that people can mobilize their dormant assets. You've got a vehicle. You don't necessarily use it seven days a week. You can use it to make money. And you're sharing your resource to make money with, from other people, right? Um, so Uber shows us that it can, it's possible to use the concept of the sharing economy to make, to make money. But it then, uh, uh, sort of insists on the employment relationship being less formal or more external than it necessarily should be, especially if you look at our particular labor law legislation. Hmm. And, and you've mentioned in your writing that there's, there's three particular conditions that, that are crucial to sort of Uber's uh, sort of existence and their ability to, to be as successful they've been in transport. Could you talk us through that? Well, okay. The first one, in essence, is basically that Uber 
has to classify itself as a technology company to avoid the legislation uh, that comes with being classified as a transportation company. And that really brings us to the debate around the uh, uh, the meter taxi drivers who have particular regulations that they need to follow. Mm. I'm not an expert on those particular transport leg- uh, uh, transport uh, regulations, but by classifying themselves as a tech company as opposed to a transportation company, they then avoid those classifications. The, th- the second one is um, they classify their drivers, they self-classify their drivers as independent contractors as opposed to employees. And again, just to reiterate my earlier point, it means that they then avoid the labor legislation that goes along with having employees in your workspace. Um, And the last one is that they rely on a depressed labor market where people are really quite desperate for work in this country. So, you know, if you look at a jurisdiction like the United States, where Uber might be, for example, someone like me, uh, a lecturer who doesn't work seven days a week necessarily, um, or who doesn't go to the office seven days a week, um, who may have time and a resource that I could use to make money. Um, so it's in those in those jurisdictions, people who are using Uber are often people who already have jobs who don't necessarily who are not necessarily desperate for work, but Uber works best when people need the jobs when people are desperate for the jobs and therefore will take and accept any working conditions that are thrown at them. Okay, so it sounds like Uber's case is pretty clear. We're not even a transport company. Our drivers are independent contractors and they're helped by the fact that people here need work. So, I mean, yeah. you as you know, someone you know, who's in the, in the legal world, is there a case to be made by Uber drivers to say, hey, that's not true. We actually are your employees and therefore you are obligated to provide such and such protections or such and such support for us as employees? I do think there's definitely a case for at least some Uber drivers to say that. It always will operate on a case-by-case basis. But I do think in all likelihood, the majority of Uber drivers can be classified as employees. Um, We've seen that in the case, uh, the Bolero case that came out of California and the United States. Same set of circumstances where Uber drivers insisted they were actually employees and the court did agree with them. Um, and that's really been the trend all over the world. Even in the UK, there are cases that have said that actually um, these drivers are employees. The sad part is uh, that in South Africa, it looks like we might have to have an actual case, an actual matter go through the courts, perhaps start at the CCMA, go to the Labour Court, maybe even go to, through the Labour Appeals Court and the Constitutional Court for us to be clear uh, on whether or not Uber drivers are employees or under what circumstances they can be classified as employees. I think on the face of it, a good lot of Uber drivers will be classified as employees. I mean, that's that's massive. And I can just imagine how big that would be for for a lot of drivers who, at least in informal conversations, are saying, sure, you get a lot of trips, but there's a lot of things lacking from their relationship, as you might say, an employment relationship um, with Uber. Um, now, now, you know, changing topics slightly is the is the the other conversation that we've had, which is. The Uber drivers or the Uber, Uber as a company versus the meter taxi drivers. Now you, when we spoke sort of offline, have been, have been sort of quite interested in this and, and you think that there's, there is a, there is room here and that government does have, there is, what should I say? You say that it's crucial that government needs to step in here. Like, let me let you speak in your own words. What do you think is the role of government in the, some of the, the issues that we've had in the fights between Uber and the meter taxi drivers? Well, I think, okay, from the first, uh, the first thing is that I, I can't condone 
the violence that have sort has sort of char have, has characterized um, the protest action uh, on behalf of the the meter taxi drivers. I do think an ideal reaction in this capitalism that we've we've chosen, <laughs> whether that's fortunate or unfortunate, is another conversation. <laughs> but in a capitalist country, um, we compete. And what I would have loved the meter taxi drivers to do right away is to you know, develop their own application. And now the nature of businesses, it's tech-based, all businesses are competing online. So even your traditional restaurants are going through Uber, they've got their own delivery apps. Businesses that normally don't operate online are finding themselves operating online. It is the way we are competing now. Um, and that's, you know, it's good or a bad thing, but really industries must catch up and keep up. But I do think that government has a role to play in making sure that Uber is actually operating in a, in a competitive way. And by that, they should be operating. First of all, they should not be allowed to not classify themselves as a transport company. They government should be paying more of a hands-on role in, in ascertaining whether or not people who are working for Uber are employees or independent contractors and not just allow the business to decide whether or not people are independent contractors or employees. Mm. Our case is riddled with um, companies claiming that employees are independent contractors and getting away with it until somebody has a dispute. We know that this happens all over our country, and I'm not sure why government isn't sort of taking a hands-on approach when considering innovative business models, um, the way our markets or our industries are changing, and what that means for the employment space. Is there is there a legal framework for that? Do I have to take Uber to court before that's discussed, or is there a framework that allows government to step in and say, hey, we want to look into this? Well, I mean, in theory, government can do whatever they like. I, and I, I think especially from a legislative pr perspective, mm. government really needs to pay a lot of attention to the way business is changing and the way people are doing business. If you look at a company, you know, slightly off the topic, a company like Airbnb, what are the implications of having individuals rent out their private homes for accommodation? Does it mean that you then give up your right to a safe environment in a private space because mm. those private spaces don't necessarily have to follow uh, 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 hotel uh, uh, regulations or accommodation regulations like ordinary hotels and B&Bs? Mm. Do we then give that right up? So, I mean, what I'm saying is these business models raise a lot of questions that nobody seems to be engaging on and nobody seems to be answering at all. Um, and to me, it's, it's quite worrisome. And I think government should be taking a much more hands-on approach to protect citizens, in particular vulnerable employees. Okay. Honto Mokwena, Law Lecture, University of Johannesburg. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. No problem. Fantastic. I mean, that, Greg, and we talked a bit about this offline, was the fascinating thing was that a lot of the news coming out of Wall Street and the States is that Uber is actually in really, really deep trouble. So, and I hope that's something we can talk to, you know, on future shows. I mean, firstly, it's just around money. I mean, their financials are not public, but... You know, a lot of insiders are saying that they're hemorrhaging cash. And as much as they're raising tons and tons of, 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 of millions of dollars that they, they, they're spending it on one, expanding really quickly and two, undercutting in other places where they established cabs, whether it's, whether it's the yellow cabs in New York or places like here, they need to come in cheap to be successful. And so they're actually spending a lot. And a lot of people are, are pointing that out. And secondly, that the culture is actually quite toxic and there's been a lot 
coming out of, 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 especially around female engineers and coders and developers and managers of saying that's a, it's a terribly hostile place for women to work. And the, and the CEO has been recorded berating drivers in the car. And there's just so much going on. And, and I saw this, this wonderful headline that says, uh, Uber is going to sort of be one of Wall Street's most sort of spectacular crashes in terms of, Pushing the boundaries of the sharing economy, um, pushing the boundaries of how we think about business and how we can use the internet for business. But that doesn't mean you're financially sustainable. So we might find out that the thing that's opened all these doors actually ends up not being, not surviving to see the promised land. Anyway, everybody tuning in. Thanks so much. That's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Remember, you can download and share the podcast. And as always, we appreciate your engagement on Twitter and you sharing the podcast with all your friends and, and loved ones. We'll see you next week, 1 to 2 p.m., same time, same place. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.